you're listening to the True Life Church podcast. To learn more about True Life Church, including our service times in Melbourne, Florida, join us online at truelifemelbourne.com or find us on Facebook. Today's message comes from lead pastor Joshua Smith. mostly following along uh, the story in Second Chronicles, whether or not you've realized it, we started this Return to Me series mostly back on Second Chronicles chapter 7, and we followed the journey of the kings, um, and good kings and bad kings, kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, kings who did what was not right, or in some cases even evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the journey that has led the people of Judah to this point in time. And just a quick recap in Second Chronicles 34, which is where uh, we, we be, um, we're going to pick up today. I want to very quickly finish this book. We talked about Manasseh and his journey, again captured by hooks. Had a moment of repentance, and that's what this series is. It's called Return to Me. And, and focusing every day on starting off this year, and even this new maybe even direction in our church with the call of repentance. Coming back to the Lord return to me. And then we, after that, last week we talked about Amon and then his son Josiah and how they found the, the book of the law that they had never seen before and didn't have access to as they were kind of renovating and redoing the temple. They found this book of the law and when they read it, King Josiah read it, he was crushed. He tore his clothes and, and, and was in, you know, great sadness because he knew that they had not been doing that. Now his heart was in the right place, but they had not been, as a people, had not been obedient to what God had called them to do, and it was a call to repentance. Well, then King Josiah ends up dying in battle, and we're going to finish off this, this book here quickly and go into the next one. So Josiah is killed, and then shortly after that, again, this is a very quick recap, um, the uh, son takes over, and then that son is kicked out, and Egypt comes and takes over. And then we have Jehoiakim, and that king is then quickly um, overtaken by this people group called the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, if we know this story, Daniel is sent off into captivity at that point in time. There are multiple captivities. You know, They came back and kind of took more people, and then they did it a third time and went back and took even more people. But Daniel was in the first captivity, people sent there to the city of Babylon. David, or sorry, Daniel, and then also we have people you may know of at least the growing up the flannel boards and, you know, things like that and Sunday school, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they got thrown in a giant 700-degree pizza oven and God was with them and brought them out of that. So this is happening simultaneously, all right? So to, some of today is going to be a, a history lesson. And, and I hope you track with me because it's important, it's actually very, very important. So that finishes off the book of Second Chronicles. And, and if you turn a page and where Second Chronicles even 36 finishes off, um, it's this decree by King Cyrus of Persia saying, let the people come back to the land which they were taken from and let them rebuild the temple. Well, how do we get to that point? Well, first of all, we're going to bounce around a little bit. We may turn there in a moment, but if you're familiar with the story again of Daniel, it's Daniel chapter 6, 
And in Daniel chapter 6, he's over there. This is after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel is still faithfully serving the Lord, right? And the son of King Nebuchadnezzar, after Nebuchadnezzar's own journey of repentance and coming back to the Lord, the son of him was not a very bright or wise guy and did not follow what his father had said to do, which is make the Lord the Lord. He took away all the other idols at the end of his life after his seven years of cuckoo acting like a farm animal time, you know, long hair and nails and everything. And, and, and he had a journey of restoration and said, this is this God, this God of Daniel, this is the God of all gods, greater than any king, and this is who we should worship. Well, his son, again, didn't do that. and wasn't a great ruler. He was very happy to throw parties, you know, lots and lots of parties. Now, the city of Babylon was a very important city, very big city, all right? Historians Xenophon and Herodotus say that it took up the span of 196 square miles. Okay, that's large still today. A massive city, and this city had walls over 300 feet high. 300 feet high. In comparison, that's more than a 25-story building. Massive walls. 87 feet thick. And they were so wide, even at the top, they bragged that they could, they could actually um, ride a chariot around the tops of these walls. And in between these walls, they had these different gates, all of iron and brass and bronze. And that was the outer wall. If someone were to breach the outer wall, then they would have to go into, then there was a middle wall with its own gates of iron and brass and bronze. And then there was a third wall. The most inner wall was over 400 feet high, protecting the kingdom, the actual palace and all that. And we're talking, you're looking at the city of Babylon, and this thing looks like an impenetrable fortress, right? Well, not to King Cyrus of Persia. See, Cyrus of Persia was a very smart tactician. And what they did was the Euphrates River went through this city of Babylon. You can look it up on a map, follow the Euphrates River. All right, there's there Babylon. And what he did is he, he dammed off part of the river to, to divert the water of the Euphrates somewhere else so that the riverbed became walkable. And then he sent his soldiers underneath the gates where the water used to run through the city, almost tro Trojan horse style. Pretty, pretty interesting. Now, they would have been in a pickle if there had been soldiers guarding the walls. But on that night, they were not. They were having another party. And so we pick up the story in Daniel 6, and that's the historical. You can look that up, all right? Pull out an encyclopedia or something like that. And that's chronicled on the historical side. We pick up in Daniel 6, and there's the handwriting on the wall. See, Daniel is brought into this party, specifically this party, as a giant hand has appeared to write on the wall these words, mine, mine, tiko, parson. And Daniel was brought in to interpret it. He said, your days are numbered. In fact, this is day zero, like time's run out. And that very night, the king was killed. And Darius the Mede took over. Now, Darius the Mede was a sub-king under the Persian Empire. Okay, So think about it if you have the president of the United States and then the governor of Florida, right? 
governor of Florida is still the governor of Florida under the authority of President of the United States. Right? So Darius the Medes, so they often you'll read historical accounts of the Medes and the Persians were grouped together. Right? And, and this is not the way it is described in the movie 300. Right? It was a very fantastical comic book or whatever. Totally different. That was not realistic. Right? This is history. And Darius the Medes served underneath the Persians. So when we read later on about King Darius... And Daniel and the lion's den, that's who we're talking about. Put in place, serving underneath King Cyrus. And so if, you, if you're just reading through these, these books, and book after book after book in the Old Testament, you can get very bored and, and, unless or until you start putting some of these pieces together. And you start understanding that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away, from where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel were living, their life, their pursuit of God, their relentless worship of him made a difference all the way back in Judah. Because as these things were happening and transpiring, then you have King Cyrus later, because of these people like these men taking his stand, saying, you know what, we're going to release the people of Judah from captivity. We're going to let them go back, and we're going to let them build the temple back. And he even financed it. All right. So don't ever think that your life for Christ does not matter. And what you're doing here doesn't really make that much of an impact. It absolutely does. And you never know the Abednego moments that could come and go in your life if we're not ready for them. And culture right now... And our nation will lead us to a day, as guaranteed in the book, will lead us to a day where you have to choose who you will serve. See, too many Christians today have one foot in the world and one foot in the faith. You cannot be in both places simultaneously. We're going to build onto that in just a little bit. So Cyrus, in this amazing battle with virtually few casualties, takes over this massive city of Babylon. You have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are all playing a part in this through Darius' reign. And then Cyrus, after Darius dies. Well, Cyrus, when he comes into Babylon and meets Daniel, he encounters something that's very interesting. And this very interesting thing was a book, a copy of the book of Isaiah. Doubtless Daniel had one. Historian Josephus recounts that um, Cyrus read this book, read this prophecy. Right? Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. It's back just a little bit in your Bibles to chapter 44. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. We're going to read a selection of verses beginning in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins." 
who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Now, up to this point, Judah is still intact. This is 150 to 200 years before the things that we have just talked about has happened. Judah has not been taken into exile yet. Daniel is not even born yet. And the families are comfortable in the areas of Jerusalem because Isaiah is writing during the time frame of what we've just been talking about over the past couple of weeks with guys like King Uzziah, King Hezekiah. All right? So if you've been following with us, this is 150 to 200 years before the events that we've just talked about take place. And we pick up here into verse 28, who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Going into 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze. And cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. Now, it's interesting here because Cyrus, at the time of this writing and this prophecy, is not even born yet. Not even king of Persia. And... This was 200, almost 200 years before all these things, these, these events take place. Before Judah's destruction and before Cyrus comes on the scene, takes over Babylon and does the things that we just talked about. And the Lord opening the doors of bronze and iron. And when we see a picture here in the prophecy from Isaiah of exactly what's going to come to place. Cyrus is named and scholars, some of them today, will be like, well, you know, they wrote that after. Or this book of Isaiah, maybe Isaiah wrote maybe the first 28 chapters or so, but the rest was written by someone else. The problem with that is, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls um, back in the, was it, 1950s or whatever in Israel? You know what I'm talking about? The great texts of the Bible in, in, in their entire form. The problem with that is, is that they dated a complete book of Isaiah to this exact time frame. 200 years before Cyrus was even alive. So this is a problem with, well, he didn't write it. Well, sorry. Because their brains can't get around God's word being that level of true, that level of revealing, that level of prophetic. It's an amazing story. So here comes Cyrus onto the scene and reads this prophecy about himself, historian Josephus says, and is just absolutely floored. Daniel is still living, living during this time, after Darius. No Cyrus. So doubtless they had conversations and encounters and, and talked about this exact thing. And so when it comes time with all these bad kings who have served Israel and they've been taken into captivity and they've been held there by Nebuchadnezzar and then his son for a span of about 70 years, now Cyrus comes on and says, this God is God. And I'm going to let much in a Pharaoh-like way, but only quicker without the plagues, let my people go, and they're going to go back home. And he finances the building of the temple. So we pick up this story chronologically now, back not in Second Chronicles, but just a page over, now in the book of Ezra. And here is both in the conclusion of Second Chronicles, the last chapter in 36, and also the beginning of, because these were separate books, 
right? Kept separately. We have the privilege of having them all together. But now in Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And you can actually look up, uh, there is a, a, it's called a cylinder of Cyrus. Cyrus's cylinder. It basically looks like a large rock Tootsie Roll. Right? And on that is cuneiform-type writing where he describes everything that we're about to read in here. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all, <coughs> excuse me, all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So then rose up the heads of the fathers of the house of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, goods, and peace, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. And Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, made these out in the charge of Mephredath, the treasurer who counted them, out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And they sent a whole bunch of the original treasures that had been taken from the temple back to be placed back in the temple. All right? <clears throat> and it's an amazing journey. And the people come back, the people of Judah, and they begin to rebuild the temple. And they lay its foundation. And they are excited to do what, what Cyrus has sent them to do and what God has tasked them to do. And they, they begin rebuilding the temple. And there's a, it says that there's a ceremony there in, in, in uh, chapter 2 and 3, which was just unbelievable. And, and you, so many cries of tears and joy all at the same time because of what was happening. And here they get a little bit sidetracked. Because other people who had not been taken into captivity, who had stayed in the area, they came onto the scene. And they said, you know what? We too are going to now worship your God. Let us help you build the temple. And the people who had been released to come back and rebuild the temple in Judah were like, no, this is our job. And then proceeds for about three to four chapters a he said, she said type of battle. Where it's just, and every, you can read it, it's, it's interesting, it's cool, but it's literally just copies of letters back and forth, back and forth of like, well, no, we need documentation. We'll ask for the documentation. Well, we need documentation. Well, here's the documentation. Back and forth and back and forth. And by now, King Artaxerxes is in charge of Persia. And he finds, perhaps even, the cylinder of Cyrus and other documents and sends those with a notary stamp and you know, certified mail, USPS. You know, it's official. And he finally sends that back to have the other people relent from their badgering and complicating of not letting the temple be rebuilt. And as this message gets sent back, now this man, Ezra, who the book is named for, takes the trip to Judah. 
to teach once the temple has been rebuilt. He's sent there by Artaxerxes. And that's his job. And he brings with him more Levites, more people who were supposed to be in leadership in the temple. And what they come to is they, that when they finally get back and they, they finally return to the homeland that they have never even seen before, the, the temple is finished and the temple is built and they find that the people who were supposed to be leading in and worship there, the priests and other people, have intermarried with some of these different people groups, which was a big no-no. And so Ezra's first job before he can even teach is to say, we need to fix this. Because the temple has been, we've returned to the land. Return to me? We've returned to the land. The temple has now been built. But now the people who are in it need some fixing. And it's time to get that right in the eyes of the Lord. And so they assemble this, this giant thing. It takes like a month to go name by name, person by person, through the registry, and for them to, in a right way, release the wives that were not, they weren't even supposed to be married to in the first place, right? Because back in those days, it wasn't, you know, one-on-one, you could take more wives, you know? That's a problem that I can't even get my brain around. I love my wife, and I'm glad that there's one of her, right? But they would take more, you know? And so they had to figure this out. They had to get, you know, offload the ones that shouldn't have been right. They had to get their lives right before the Lord. And as, like, what is this all about, right? Because as we get close to wrapping up this series, and as we get close to shifting even this room back, not everything is going to be the same. Not everything is going to be different. And I'm thankful because we have, we have a space. And if you think back in the journey of, of us here at True Life Church, going back seven years and now just almost um, four years in this space, so we've only used it for just three, three and a half of that because of the renovations, we've, we're able to prepare this place, build, if you will, the, the temple, right? And we've been in it a bit, and that's okay. But we cannot wrap this series up without taking a hard look at who we are as inhabitants of this place. We start off this series, hopefully you felt this, with a very introspective and personal look at repentance. And we're going to wrap today's message up with what we need to do as a church. Because that's where they were at. We, the, the book of Isaiah, ten chap, or Ezra, the book of Ezra, ten chapters of it, it finishes up. And that's, the book just drops off. Like, it just ends. Like, it's kind of weird. You know, they're, they're, they're fixing it, and it goes through the houses and the names that they, that they have fixed the marriage up. And then that's just it. Because then after this, chronologically, comes a guy named Nehemiah, who came with Zerubbabel and everyone else back to the first group that was released by Cyrus. And if you know your Bible, hopefully you know a little bit about Nehemiah and building a wall. All right, we're going to go there next week as we wrap this series up. But for today, there's some things that we're going to come to a point of why the history that has led us to here matters and what should we do about it. In Ezra, which is where we are in Ezra, 
chapter 2 and 3, we talked about that, and there's a whole bunch of names there. And if you're ever bored about the names in the Bible, I, I'm hopefully going to be able to give you a spin on that in just a minute. But here in Ezra chapter 8, now Ezra comes back, and these are the heads of the father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia. In the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was one of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. And it goes on and on and on with names that sometimes I challenge you in a fun way to say right. You know, it's like this should be on a flashcard. I'll give you, give you five bucks to say this one right. Right? It's fun. Interesting names. Regardless, why is that even there? Why is that in there? Why is that important? As you read the books of Deuteronomy, Numbers, some parts of Leviticus, the book of Matthew starts off this way. Our young adults know that. And it's just the genealogy. Why is that all important? Because if, if you don't know where you come from and what has led you to this moment, you are not completely aware of what you may need to do in this moment. So people are fascinated uh, with the Ancestry.com thing that has come up, right? So people are sending off their DNA willingly, uh, willingly is the scary part, sending it off willingly to, to, to have it say, where do I come from? Where do I go? Where do I come from? Cotton Eye Joe. And they send it off, and, and they want to know where they come from. You know, I'm, I'm you know, 17% Irish, 2% Bulgarian, and 87% and, and unknown. Well, that was helpful. Thanks, Ancestry.com. Um, but it's helpful to know where you come from. Like my, my personal history, I've shared a little bit. You know, I, my dad was in the Air Force, right? And, and they grew up in North Georgia. And he and my mom also in, in North Georgia. And my family goes back in North Georgia. My, my grandfather flew P-40s in North Africa in World War II. Kind of cool bit, right? And then my father's father's father right, goes back there. And so we end up being uh, 116th-ish Cherokee Indian um, from North Georgia. And then my great-great-great-grandfather fought in the American Civil War uh, for the losing side. He was in the 41st um, Georgia Volunteer Infantry, Company H, and he died at the Battle of Vicksburg. Right, and then going back and back. So that's, that's a little bit of the personal history, right? And it's good to know that because now, you know, I can read the Trail of Tears story with a little bit more insight, right? That's helpful information. And you may know a little bit of your past story. There's a story I want to share a little bit about. Um, and I had a conversation with some friends at dinner last night that, that reminded me to just, just investigate this a little bit. And I want to give you, just bear with me, all right? All right, so many of you know I play piano. I do. I get by uh, a little bit sometimes. A little bit, yeah. My life is young, so just a little bit. Um, so there's me, and for my piano students, a couple who are here, many who are at church, um, small little plug, I've got a piano recital next Sunday at 2 o'clock if you want to come here. People from our church play piano. They're doing a great job. Anyway. So we're going to go a little bit back in the, in the piano history thing. So bear with me, because this is actually all interesting and research and, and documents. So I had, I had three teachers growing up. I had a lady named Linda McLaren who got me playing in church. I'm immensely thankful for. Um, and then I had two other teachers, a lady named Pervin Muradov, who is still alive and still teaching in town. She's the director of music and piano studies at FIT. And also a man named David Ward. Uh, David Ward is a Steinway artist and has played at Carnegie Hall and went to the Juilliard School of Music, right? So that was, that was my piano training from about age 11 to 17. It was very um, accelerated, let me put it that way. 
Um, now, David Ward at Juilliard, uh, his teacher was a man named Gary Grafman. I'm sure you've never heard of him. Gary Grafman was only one of two students of a man named Vladimir Horowitz. And if you're familiar with classical or piano recordings, he is often regarded as the most talented pianist of the entire 20th century, uh, Vladimir Horowitz. Right? And he was only, Gary Grafman was one of only those two students of Vladimir Horowitz. Now, Vladimir Horowitz was taught by a man named Felix Blumenfeld. Felix Blumenfeld, all right? And Felix Blumenfeld had two influential teachers. One of them was named Fedor Stein. The other was named Nikolai Remsky-Korsakov. Again, if you are familiar with classical music, you may know that name. Russian composer, pretty influential writer, often known as the father of like the Russian symphony and father or motherland music. Very, very influential person. All right, so that's kind of cool, Rimsky-Korsakov. Um, and then so tracking back with Fedor Stein, um, you, you may not know who Fedor Stein is, but I, you probably know who his teacher was. His teacher was named Frederick Chopin. All right? So this is, going, this is going back in my... So my students now are brought into this lineage of, of generations. I'm six students removed from Chopin. It's kind of cool, right? I've never shared that. I don't talk about it much, you know, because it's not like a ooh, right? But it kind of is a ooh, you know? It is, it is a little cool, right? So then, so then Frederick Chopin was taught by a name named Wolzhets Zwini, right? Some of these names in the Czech get a little interesting to not only read but pronounce. And then going back, Jean Kurtetel Kuchar, right? And all these are actually documented. Like they, they kept a record of who their students was were. Now, obviously, they had more than these one student. This is the one that made it. You know, this is the one that did really well. And they had a lot of others. They had a lot of others. Okay, these are these are the ones that did really well. All right. At, before um, Jean Kuchar was a man named Joseph Seeger. Right? And he was a church organist, and he died in the year 1782. Right? Joseph Seeger. Now, before him, he was taught by a man named Bohuslav Matej-Shinorsky. Right? He was a um, priest and an organist, in a weird way, kind of come full circle. Priest and an organist um, in Italy and Prague, and he's referred to as the Bohemian Bach. Now, I know you don't know the name, and without this list, I wouldn't either. But you did hear his music this morning. Before we started worship, that was a piece he wrote as a priest, an organist, called Laudate Jesus Christus, in praise of Jesus Christ. And so my teacher's 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 teacher wrote that song. I love it. And he was a contemporary and good friends with a man named Giuseppe Tartini. And they um, got started on counterpoint together. And, and uh, Boroslav Chinorsky had the school of counterpoint, which became very influential. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. And his friend, Giuseppe Tartini, was actually the owner and was given the first Stradivarius violin that he gave to his student. It was known as the Lipinski Stradivarius. All right? So that's now we're going back in time, all right? And he was taught, not Giuseppe Tartini, but Boroslav Chinorsky was taught by a name named Frentisek Tuma, all right? And before them, a man named Johann Joseph Fuchs, who's German, 
born in 1660, died in 1741. And he wrote a very influential piece for the, it wasn't the piano at that time, but for harpsichord and instrument, known as Gratus Ad Parnassum. And if you're a student of classical piano, this is a work which you cannot escape if you continue in the instrument. And this Gratus Ad Parnassum, so influential in the study of counterpoint, was studied by a man named Franz Joseph Haydn, was given a copy of Johann Fuchs's work, and Franz Joseph Haydn was influenced heavily by this piece, by my teacher's teacher, 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 teacher. Franz Joseph Haydn had a student, a little guy, named Ludwig van Beethoven. Franz Joseph Haydn was also a mentor to another little guy, didn't live quite as long, and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Before him, you have Johann Caspar Carrill going back in time, Giovanni Valentini, Giovanni Gabrielli, Andriella Gabrielli, Adrian Willert, Jean Moton, Zosquin de Presse, Johann Ockegem, Gilles Bichois, Guilherme Dufay, and finally, where the lineage of my piano teacher stops, Richard Locqueville, who died in the year 1418, and he was a, another organist at a cathedral in Cambria. So while you're watching the movie Braveheart next time, you can think that in France, simultaneously, was my teacher's 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 And it goes back. Now, it's pretty cool, right? But that's my piano story to hear. And I can look back and reflect and like, man, I'm so thankful that someone somewhere taught that person, like, I don't know, Chopin, piano. And the gift we have, leftover years and years and years, that I know I get to teach my students their teachers, 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 teachers' work. How thankful. And so we have genealogies and lists in the book here, the book, that matter infinitely more than classical music. Because they tell the people of Judah and us grafted onto the tree of Israel as well, why this matters. Because ultimately, through the person of Jesus Christ, this is also now our adopted history. These names matter. Not as far as biological descent, but biblical. And this leads us to a place today Because our journey to here as a church is young. And the big picture of life is fairly short. But in this time and span that we have been to Life Church, and in this series that we have been in, Return to Me, starting off both this year and a new direction of our church. whether or not you realized it, is the call is now not for personal repentance, but for that of our church. We need to clean house. Now, I'm not saying here that I believe that someone is unmarried or married to the wrong person. Right? That's not the point. We're not doing that Ezra style because that's not what is asked of us. What is, is for us to return to the Lord. 
And so as a church, I want to free some space up today for you, for as long as you've been here and as much or as little as you desire, to invite us as a church to repent for things that us as a church have not done well or always in honor of God. And if you don't mind, I would like to go first. I'm thankful for the lessons that we've learned through the process of be, being here, being a lead pastor, and everything that has gone through. And I'm sure, as in many of your lives, the hindsight is 2020 phrase would ring true. But that can also not make us unrepentant for the things that have not gone the way we wanted to or should have been done better. For example, I repent of trying to lead us six years ago into hiring too many people too soon. That's something us as a church we could have done differently. And though it was never said, it was never spoken, it wasn't the goal, it was in many ways perhaps as Ben has mentioned to me before, not in this, but just the title, a shadow mission. That when we built this place and renovated it, its core purpose was to praise God, but in the way of being like a little megachurch. Do you know what I mean? Like if you went, and this is back in 2018, 2017, when we were planning for this place, if we were to be a smaller I can't even say this word now, elevation or a Calvary chapel or something like that, high level of excellence and, and quality, but at a much smaller level of community. And those are not the right goals. And we, we never put them out in front of the people. We never really talked about it. But in a sense of trying to even make our church like other churches, we failed. And I believe I should lead us in the repentance of that. And through the last year and a half, I have learned to treasure and appreciate who we are as not a mega, but a micro church. And I can look around and stand in the circle and know you by name. And you can look at each other in a circle and know hopefully people by name. You're not going to get lost. You're not a number. And I believe we need to repent in this place of maybe trying to be something that God had not called us to be. Personally, as a leader of this church, I probably have the most to repent for. I'm fine with that. And if there's something you want to stand up and repent of on behalf of our church that was my decision, I support that. But we can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the faith. And we're not going to be able to be the church that we need to be unless we clear some air. And you are part of our church. I invite you, if there's something on your heart, to say it. And then we corporately will seek the Lord together.